you know, making about South is a lot of fun. Like we really have a lot of fun putting this podcast together. And most times when we get together to work on an episode or talk production ideas, we laugh until our sides hurt. But that doesn't mean we don't take what we do really seriously. And it doesn't mean that we don't want to do the best job possible. And it doesn't mean that we think what we talk about when we talk about the South doesn't have real material implications for people's lives. And so when we heard that Southern Study Scholar John Smith was going to be in Atlanta in April, we wanted to ask him what he thought of our first season. And for those of you who don't know John, he's a pretty tough critic. He's not really shy with his opinions. And that's okay. We wanted to invite him to ask him to kind of be tough on us. And this turned into a really amazing conversation about all sorts of things that we identify with the South, from cornbread to Cahaba lilies. And the other thing that's really odd about John and I's history is that, unbeknownst to us, we lived in the exact same neighborhood in Birmingham at the exact same time. I had not gone back to grad school, and John was already well into his career. But we were thinking about some of the same things at the same time. I was trying to grow a somewhat misguided container garden on my balcony, while he was putting together an amazing yard just a few blocks away. I had never made this connection until I read his book, Finding Purple America. And later, in his special afterward, written for Southern Spaces, where he details his process of growing this garden and leaving Birmingham. And it sounded so eerily familiar as I frantically tried to pack up plants for my own departure from Alabama to Northern California, where I wasn't even sure which of my containers they would let into the state. And so before we begin, I wanted to share this passage because I think it gives a fair account of who John is underneath the criticism. It goes, in 2010, my wife and I moved to North Vancouver, British Columbia. By 2012, our Birmingham garden was no more. We had been unable to sell the house in the depressed U.S. market, and the folks to whom we were able to rent it were lovely people, but in no sense gardeners, nor could we have expected them to be. Scores of plants, including virtually all the rhododendrons, died from lack of watering. Others were shaded out by weeds. To make matters worse, sometime in early 2012, a crew from the city of Birmingham came down the trail with a backhoe on some sort of trail widening mission, got the backhoe stuck, and destroyed many more plants in the process of extricating it. For no apparent reason, they also went 20 feet out of their way to cut down my sourwood tree, which had gotten about 12 feet tall. A few plants, generally those native not simply to quote the South or Alabama, but to Jefferson County in particular, do still thrive back there. The Alabama snow wreath I planted by the limestone outcrop 
likes the location so much it is suckered all over the place, almost blocking access to the path. The Piedmont azaleas, bottlebrush buckeyes, oak leaf hydrangeas, and three cultivars of hydrangea arborescens are all still there, if you know where to look. But for the most part, the garden has been swallowed back up into the mix of invasive plants and second growth forest that was there before I started the project. Inside the fence, meanwhile, most of the non-native hydrangeas are gone. In fact, when we do put the house on the market the next year, we've been told we will have to do considerable work just to restore its, quote, curb appeal. Part of me wants to interpret all of this metaphorically, to read my desiccated, neglected garden as a slightly accelerated version of the Deep South as a whole, whose fate in 50 years as a result of anthropogenic global warming is on track to be, in a single word from NASA climatologist James Hansen, desertification. After all, how easy would it be, and I argue in Finding Purple America, how unethical to fall into pleasant moralizing tears over my garden as a figure for such loss, to adapt old Southern studies' endlessly replicable melancholia for yet another lost cause. Conversely, how easy to lay from the safe distance of Western Canada the problem at the feet of the South, so that the whole mess could be attributed to those pickup-driving, coal-burning yahoos the exception to some putatively eco-virtuous blue state nation. Both narratives, however, represent their own kinds of obvious myth-making. Instead, as soon as we got to North Vancouver, I started another garden. Among the more conventional roses, peonies, dahlias, and cacrosmia, it contains what may be the only longleaf pine seedling in British Columbia. in British Columbia, even though you were a Southern Studies scholar. That's very true. How do you find that comparison between being pretty far away from the Southeast and working on the South? What is that like for you? And do you have any sort of good examples of where you're sort of struck by maybe an uncanniness of Southern Studies still around your life in British Columbia? Um, it is weird. I mean, when I was doing, I, I taught at uh, Mississippi State and, and the University of Montevallo for like 12 years before I went up up north. Um, and yeah, that was always convenient. You, you read the Birmingham News, although that, does, that newspaper doesn't fully exist anymore. Uh, you read the paper, you're, you have a sort of, you're plugged into the local things pretty well, although local is complicated, right? I don't think if I'm, if I want to write something about North Carolina, I'm not sure I'm at much more of a disadvantage from uh, British Columbia than I would be from Alabama, um, but yeah, it's it's. Uh, this is my first extended trip back in the South uh, since 2010 when we moved up there, and um, it it's certain things change, certain things don't change, and it's just sort of a. a it's I, I feel like I'm absorbing things rather than uh, doing quite the kind of focused research that I thought I was doing. So, I see. Yeah. 
I'm kind of curious since this is going to air when listeners are just coming back to the first uh, few episodes of the second season of About South. What did you think of the first season? You're a pretty tough critic in Southern Studies, so we're kind of curious to see, like, uh, what do we get right? What do we get wrong? I think I like the ones where you address issues of uh, what the South is most directly. So of the ones, I, and I, I realize that the two I didn't listen to may be ones that did this, but the Blue Crayfish one, for example, you were, when you're, the very first one, when you're setting out what you're trying to do and so forth, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't describe the South as a Blue Crayfish. Okay, why? Um, if I say it doesn't really exist, then we go down this rabbit hole. Uh, or it only exists in terms of people who say bogus things. Southern identity consists of saying, believing that there's a South rather than any any actually existing external um, traits of a region that stretches from freaking New Orleans to Appalachia. Um, and I say that, I don't know how much I have to defend that, um, but this question, you say that to like a historian, and historians don't do theory much, and so they automatically assume you're assuming some sort of philosophical idealism kind of argument um, uh, that nothing really exists. Or this, is, this is how historians tend to think about like the 70s in our profession and deconstruction and the moment when, when we started going over their heads. And I don't know. That's not what I mean. I don't mean it doesn't, you know, I don't mean nothing exists or anything crap like that. Okay. Blue crayfish certainly exist, mm-hmm. right? But... When I attempted to find what is the corresponding real thing behind this thing that I can go to the pet store and see that you can acquire for uh, $20, essentially, the problem is, is that it doesn't, even though everyone, there's all this information that it seemingly exists, it's endemic to Florida, that is where it lives. You could presumably go there and see it. You, in fact, there it doesn't correspond to anything that's necessarily real at this point. There are not colonies of blue crayfish in the St. Johns River as are marketed or sort of purported about this species. It becomes way more complex than that. Is it even a species? It is a species. Okay. It is a species. But it's not a mutant version of a regular crayfish. It is a, well, they actually aren't sure if it is um, controlled by genetics, protein, light exposure. It's, it's right. a number of factors right. that go into what are now bred crayfish that are sold that correspond to some real that like, yes, is not entirely like, you know, Theoretically, it could exist in the wild, but in fact, it just it just doesn't. It's not so much that it precipitated. It's not so much that it precipitated an existential crisis as I think, sort of a realization that anytime we start to try to pinpoint the thing that we think is somehow essentially attached to the South and Southern identity, if you look into it hard enough, you start to find that there are an array of factors that go into producing the thing that may seem to be endemic to the region. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It does. Uh, um, Okay, so where I differ is I'd say that the the difference for me in the metaphors is that for me the South is not a blue crayfish because it's not... This is going to sound... Like I can touch... 
no one can argue that they aren't in fact real. They're right. real and abundant. Right. But there is no immediately corresponding natural reality, put that in quotes, right. that just exists of its own accord without the intervention of all sorts of other production factors. Right. But nobody's inventing a blue crayfish. Right. The blue the blue crayfish, as you say, actually exists. Um, the South is this thing we imagine. Uh, it's not a political entity anymore. It's not, people want to say it's a coherent cultural identity, entity, but it's not. And they want to say it's a coherent cultural identity, and it's not. Um, there's an element of desire in the way we construct the South that is, is less conspicuously there in the way we talk about uh, a blue crayfish. Um, there's a South because some people want there to be a South. Uh, and that's, a blue crayfish is just, oh look, there's a blue crayfish. I wonder what made it a blue crayfish. It's not like I called a blue crayfish into existence through the sheer force of my wanting there to be some so I can feel special about myself. Oh, I see. I mean, I would argue that in fact, like, selective breeding and the farming of exclusively blue crayfish for the aquarium trade are people calling them into being because they want them to be there and be special. Well, if we talk about selective breeding in the context of the South, we get into some weird places pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah, but that, that's assuming that... I'm not saying blue crayfish are Southern people. I understand that. Right. Yeah. So I think that's one of the, the real differences. Um, yeah. They do exist out of like a desire for something special, but it's a completely artificial... And nobody is investing their identity in uh, blue crayfish. No one is saying, so. I come from the land of blue crayfish. Right. Um, you know, I'm, I'm proud to be a blue crayfish person. They don't, they're not making up t-shirts that say, well, you know, I mean, I hope that bitter soon... blue crayfisher kind of thing. <laughs> I got to look forward Garden to the day. Garden and crayfish. Garden and crayfish. Well, I don't know. I mean, About South could have a store eventually. and Oh, you could. And then and market it online and send out tweets every couple of hours. Uh, hey, check out our new blue, well, you yeah, our new blue crayfish sweatshirt. Show your blue crayfish pride. Um, this blue crayfish thing is totally not about slavery. Oh, I see. Yeah. Although I'm not opposed to us having merchandise if it can... Uh... Oh, no. If it advances... Well, this is this is the slippery slope, isn't it? Yeah. You say, well, I'm commodifying uh, uh, this for a good cause, and then the next thing you know, you know, where are you? What's your problem with cornbread? What's my problem with cornbread? Uh, I like cornbread. I actually, I know that it tastes better when you do it in a cast iron skillet. I even have one of those really complicated little lodge cast iron things that's divided into like eight subunits. I don't have anything against cornbread per se. As soon as cornbread becomes uh, a carrier of identity, I get very annoyed. Can I read you what uh, an example of what bugs me so much? Mm -hmm. Okay. So this is from, I can say this, this is from a best-selling book about the South. If you go to Square Books in Oxford, Mississippi, you will actually find this book uh, under the Southern Studies section, which is weird because there are no, as far as I know, no actual academics involved. Um, it's called The Garden and Gun Southerner's Handbook. It leads off with food. Everyone understands, I think, that Southern food as a commodity, as an object of desire, well, oh, let me read it. Okay. Uh, here's how it begins. 
The rest of the country has long wanted what Southerners have. They covet our stone ground grits and skillet fried okra. They thirst for our whiskey. They want our ham, a chef friend once told me as we leaned against his truck, swigging a bottle of bourbon. And they want our history. Okay, can we unpack that for a second? Um, the rest of the country has long wanted what Southerners have. And then the next few sentences are about food. They covered our stone ground grits and skillet fried okra. But the rest of the country has literally not really cared about Southern food until the last 15 or 20 years ago. And for that record, for that matter, Southerners have not cared about Southern food as Southern food. It was just food, as we were saying yesterday, as your dad would say. Um, it was just food. And then suddenly it becomes Southern food and becomes an expression of identity. Uh, and that's because they're desperate to find a white Southern identity that isn't about slavery, mm-hmm. that they, they don't have to be ashamed of, right? Because the South ultimately always, the ultimate def- definition of the South is the former states of the Confederacy. And, and the Confederacy was about slavery. So the rest of the country has long wanted what Southerners have. But this is, what a fantasy, right? The whole thing about the South is that um, it was poorer than the rest of the country. The rest of the, it didn't have uh, a kind of bounty um, for almost, or or it had, I mean, the, the real subtext there is not about food. Um, I mean, Southerners have been saying the rest of the country wants what we have for a long time, but what they were saying is they want to take away our slavery. <laughs> that was the complaint going back to the 1850s, right? So what you've done here, and it's an emotional uh, grievance, and, it, and pe- it, it feels good to feel righteous and aggrieved. Um, and this is true whether you're on the left or whether you're on the political right. Um, that sense of righteous grievance is a very powerful and compelling one for people. All right, so the rest of the country has long wanted what Southerners have. Immediately you've got this division, a presumed division between the rest of the country and us. Um, and you feel good. They covet, our, okay, no one has said covet outside a church uh, in North America for like the last 150 years. Um, this is probably not an entirely accurate rendition of the conversation. It's been worked up as creative nonfiction writers are wont to do. But covet, really? That's actually accusing the rest of the country of violating one of the Ten Commandments, right? It's implicit in the rhetoric, um, uh, which is kind of harsh. They are stone ground grits. Well, why would they covet it? They can buy it. It's, the people who covet stone ground grits tend to actually be these upper class Southerners who want to purchase, you know, high-end stone ground organic grits from the two mills in South Carolina or Alabama or Arkansas or whatever, why do they covet it? Why is it suddenly this object of desire over the last 20 years? And it's partly it's this substitution. Let's have a Southern identity that's about food rather than about racism. Is it possible that this is kind of a straw man? That, or... Of course, this type of text like, is romanticizing something. And this is really common in cultural industries across all sorts of categories. Yep. Like, is it... The devil's advocate question is, is this passage, this text, is it... Why is it important to critique? Or are, are we just complaining against people who, like, aren't going to listen and don't care? <laughs> No, I don't... uh. So here's the thing, right? Southern studies has changed so much over the last 20 years. And uh, virtually none of that has trickled out into popular understandings of the South. I I would think that's part of what this podcast is about, right? Um, And the people who are are 
commenting in forums about in in popular forums about the South are doing so in a way that is kind of willfully ignoring a kind of scholarship that questions some of the foundational premises. So this this is a best right. This book will reach more readers than anything I've ever done in my life. Let's assume that uh, the South is not perfect. Fair, let's, let's, fair assumption. Okay, then if you want to make things better, you probably have to proceed from a realistic assessment of where you are. And if you're assessing Southern identity in these terms, and if this is, right, I mean, the glossy magazines are the chief root of Southern identity because there's no political um, entity called the South. There has not been since 1865, and that is a good thing. Um, it is... It keeps getting worked up into a cultural identity through a kind of, and, and I say the glossy magazines because those, those, that's the steady drumbeat for Southerners. Certainly there are movies, there are television shows, uh, shows set in the South or just filmed in the South. Hollywood plays a role in this, but in terms of people from the South creating ideas of the South for other people from the South, the chief medium is still magazines, which seems weird to me actually, um, but that's what it is. and and. Uh, magazines tailored toward a kind of decidedly upper middle class audience who also have a lot of power in the culture far more than like poor people do so if you can reach those people if you can correct the fiction being promulgated to and for those people then you can start to make things better this kind of language um, thinks it, it thinks it's racially inclusive it thinks it's helping build a better South uh, but because it's so invested in fantasies of its own specialness or homogeneity, or not homogeneity, but uh, but uh, 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 that there is such a thing as Southern culture that stretches from New Orleans to uh, Appalachia, it really causes more, far more problems than it solves. And it's so transparently BS, right? I mean, that's. But people don't register, read, it, read it as that. They're they're in this kind of. They share, if you share the ideology, or you come close, or you just have a need to feel special, this is going to seem normal to you. Um, and no one sits down, no one, no one says, okay, I have a PhD in English, I think I'll do a close reading of this passage and show how incoherent and bizarre and resentful it is. And no one hasn't, I think, seems to have enough knowledge of how white Southerners have felt since about the 1840s or 50s uh, and how this, they think they're making a sharp break with a very racist heritage, but in fact, it's the exact same rhetoric and it's the same structures of feeling uh, and it's... It's, uh, it's not good. It's ethically and politically bad for the region. It's an outsourcing of the still potent guilt around enslavement. Absolutely. Onto something that seems value neutral, i.e. cornbread. Exactly. It, it, an overcompensation for shame. Back in the South yep. for an extended time since yep. 2010. Uh, what are you doing here right now? Yep. Um, and kind of what have you found on this latest research trip? What are you hoping to find? And perhaps, I mean, I think what has changed and not changed since you've been away? Yeah. 
Uh, oh, a bunch of things. Let's see. So the, the trip was to go look at parks and Southern Studies centers, um, two seemingly very disparate things. By parks, you mean national parks, state parks, or city parks? A little of each. Okay. Um, and to, to look at the messages they send about, well, the, the, the physical environments send. Um, and so I started, I was going to do this, and this was actually half recreational, half research. I was going to hike the uh, Appalachian Trail from Damascus, Virginia, on up to Rockfish Gap outside Charlottesville. I've done the uh, southernmost 450 miles. I did that from Springer Mountain in Georgia up to Damascus before I left the south in 2010. And I was going to continue that. And I actually eventually wanted to finish the southern half of the Appalachian Trail. Because that's... Uh, and, and to go a little past Harper's Ferry. Because like the Appalachian Trail uh, is weird in that it's basically a park that's about five feet wide and over 2,000 miles long. Uh, and what that does, it, it, it conveys... And yet you're always in Appalachia, by definition. Um, and, you're, and it's not that different, right? When you cross... Um, a state line, you know, for Tennessee and North Carolina, you're going back and forth across that state line frequently as you as you work your way north. Then you're in Virginia for 550 miles, and then it crosses Harbors Ferry, and then it goes into Pennsylvania, and it's all Appalachia. It's all Appalachian hardwood forest. Um, you can sort of, you know, the red buds bloom at a different time in Georgia than they do in Pennsylvania, but you got red buds. A uh, hundred years ago, you would have had ch American chestnuts. Uh, you still got a lot of oaks. And it's, it's um, region, you can hike the entire Appalachian Trail without caring at all about the South. And yet it's in the South, it's a crucial point, half of it's in the South. Um, when it hops the Mason-Dixon line, it doesn't care. Harper's Ferry, obviously, is a huge historical site in its own right. But geologically, if you're, if you're serious about place, then it would say, then you can t give me more information by saying you live 50 miles from the Appalachian Trail, pretty much regardless of where along it you are, than by saying you live in the South or you live in Massachusetts or whatever. I can tell you um, what plant species are probably growing on where you are, uh, something about the geology. Um, that's, that's a connection. Oh, so, so sorry, did that, went five days, got the worst blisters I've ever had, had to get off trail. Um, so that was kind of a disaster. For your readers, if, you, if you're not from central Alabama, you might not know, the Cahaba lily is a really cool, really rare lily that grows on shoals in the middle of rivers in the south. It's part of a genus called Hymenocallus that's basically based in the Caribbean. Uh, there's a swamp version, and then there's something called the Peruvian lily that I know little about. That's about the southernmost as far as the genre. So it's if you're into like the tropical south or the south, the U.S. south is an extension of the Caribbean, that whole hemispheric moment of 15 years ago. Um, you like Cahaba lilies, but they're very cool because the seeds um, of this particular species are heavier than water. And what they do is they lodge in these shoals and you get these huge stands of lilies in the middle of a river and it's beautiful and fantastic. Most of the rivers in the south, the deep south, have been dammed, so there are only a couple of rivers that the Cahaba lily still exists on. One is the Cahaba River. Um, 
And so it's this fantastic thing that needs to be preserved. And it's part of what's special about Alabama. And Alabama, dare I say, is an awesome freaking state. It's the fifth most biologically diverse state in the country. It's not by any stretch of the imagination the fifth largest, but it's the fifth most diverse. And that's because it stretches from the coast up into Appalachia in the northern section. And so it's, oh my God, the fish species, as you probably know, former fisheries science major person, uh, really a lot of fish species. Uh, so this it's this fantastic resource. Um, if you're if you're, I it's I think it's much more logical to be proud of Alabama, uh, than to be proud of South or Southern heritage, which is far more of a fiction. If you live in, I mean Alabama is a real political entity. Alabama has a disastrous legislature. It has a disastrous. Uh, state constitution. It has a disastrous governor who will be impeached by the time this is broadcast, probably. That stuff is beginning right now. Um, Alabama has massive problems, as do many other southern states. Alabama's poor education. I could go on. We all could. We all know what's bad about the South, and that's why we want to talk about cornbread instead. Um, but why not talk about the Cahaba? Not as southern, but as part of what is amazing about Alabama. Now, if you live in Mississippi, you got a heavier lift. I'm just, well, just saying. I don't know. I mean, you know, having been, um, I'm one of the few people who has multiple times in my life voluntarily moved to the state of Alabama. Yeah. Um, so it has a real, I have a real deep affection for the state of Alabama mm -hmm. that I think was already established last season. <laughs> yeah. So you don't have to sell me. Um, and I do think that state by state, if we think of those units, we are, which are also to at some point like initially imagined, right? Right. Um, before the borders of Alabama, there wasn't a like a. Those lines are arbitrary, right? But of course, yes, Alabama is a real political entity that like right. encompasses so much biological diversity, cultural diversity. I mean, there really is a lot there. Yeah. yeah. What did you notice? What happened when you were back and you were looking for the Kaaba lily? Did you see it as this <laughs> thing that you were hoping to come back and see? Yeah. So I live. This in seems to stand in for so much oh, of what you love. This is this is the new biological metaphor. Um, yeah. No. Fair enough. So yeah, Kaaba lilies are my crayfish. That's where we're going to this. So okay, maybe. Okay. So uh, we get no good thunderstorms in British Columbia. It rains for like eight months out of the year. We have two seasons. We have a wet season and a dry season. Uh, in the wet season, it just rains. It's this thin, misty rain that's really depressing. And in the winter, the days get like eight hours long, and I hate it. Uh, so I come down to Alabama, and, and like the third night, the second night I'm there, it's this monster thunderstorm. It thunderstorms all night. I'm like, oh, this is great. I haven't been in a good thunderstorm in like seven years. This is fantastic. So the next morning, it's still raining pretty hard. Uh, I kill some time for a few hours, and I see it's going to clear off by about one. So I go down to the Cahaba National Wildlife Refuge, which is a river. I mean, the refuge is basically a river and 100 yards on either side of it. And um, you, you all know what happens to rivers when it rains. I imagine that there is a lot of water. Yeah, that's a rhetorical question. So the Cahaba is, the beautiful Cahaba is under at least like three or four feet of muddy flood water. So I see nothing. I mean, I see some of the signs, which are useful for me. I take little photographs of the signs so I can go back and do interpret it. But basically, it's a, it's kind of a wasted trip. But of course, the Cahaba lilies are the visual manifestation of something more important.
but here's the thing, right? It took political action, real political action, to create the Cahaba National Wildlife Refuge. Uh, a big guy behind it was Spencer Vacas, a Republican congressman from Vestavia. I think it may have been part of his district, I'm not sure. Um, he helped create that, right? So it's this, um, if you value something, uh, then it, food doesn't do this. But if you value something like nature, it takes actual political action to make it work. If you value something like education, which Alabama does not sufficiently, the Alabama government does not sufficiently value, it takes political action to improve your education system. If you value infrastructure, as they certainly do, because that diverts money to construction people who give money to the politicians and you get this lovely uh, circle, then it takes political action to build that infrastructure, to build those highways or, my God, light rail or whatever it is. And that's, that's what uh, food doesn't encourage anyone to do. Um, because You can say, oh, it encourages people to buy organic food or something, but only a few people can afford organic food on a steady basis. Now, you're known as a bit of a firebrand in Southern Studies. Is that fair? I guess. Why do you think you have this reputation? I'm an I'm a incredibly divisive figure, shall we say. Um, Did you set out to be? Oh, not at all. Um, everything changed in 2006. And what I've been trying to do since 2006 is take people not where they want to go, but where they don't want to go. Uh, and that happens in a couple of ways. One thing I realized, there was a great scholar named Patricia Yeager, who died a couple of years ago, uh, who wrote a book called Dirt and Desire, which has been very influential for us. But when it came out, it didn't get the C. Hugh Holman Award for Best Book of Southern, Studies, uh, Southern Literary Studies that year. That went to a book called The Fugitive Legacy, and a, uh, like an appreciation or something like that, which was literally about how great the agrarians were and the awesomeness of Cleanth Brooks. That's in 2000. Um, so, and, and people called Patsy angry. Um, and, and they wondered why she was being mean. She started her book by arguing with another second wave feminist who had written a biography of, a, of Ellen Glasgow, I think, and, and talked about all these agrarian terms and, and passages comes in and says, I'm tired of these categories. And so her rhetoric moves back and forth between a kind of scholarly thing and a kind of personal annoyance with old Southern studies. Um, and that book is dirt and desire for those listeners who haven't read it. I mean, it's impossible to imagine that it didn't win the prize, given the imprint that it's had oh. on Southern Studies, American Studies, fe Feminist Studies. I mean, it's really... I'm pretty sure it's the most cited book of Southern Studies of the last 20 years. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and far, it, the other book has like a total of 12 citations. Right. And I mean, and, and deserved. I mean, it's, it's certainly a book that said something at the time right. that people needed to hear. Right. Right. So what, one of the things that I noticed when the scholar in PMLA uh, mentioned it, because she gave a paragraph to it, she mentioned the, the sort of the second wave feminist points Patsy was making, but she didn't at all, she ignored all the anti-agrarian arguments, all the ar arguments that Patsy was making against the kind of Southern studies that most people still did. And what I realized was um, people are, even in academia, people are ridiculously selective listeners. Um, they take from your work what they think they can incorporate into their own work, and they oftentimes just ignore the challenges. 
And Patsy was brilliant about this. She said, you know, and there's, there's such a gender component to this, uh, and I'm totally paraphrasing, um, uh, Southern manners are designed to hide heterogeneity and injustice. And the corollary from that is, if you want to fight hetero uh, uh, fake homogeneity and injustice, <laughs> you can't be polite. You can't be ladylike. I took that lesson very much to heart. And so what I try very hard, to, and I also had an article early on that I was writing about uh, Southern nature writing and how weirdly it, it, it vacillates between talking about um, nature as wilderness, as more northerly writers do, and nature as jungle, which more tropical writers do. It doesn't quite know how to talk about swamps in the deep south or Florida, say. The, mm -hmm. the, the rhetoric, mm -hmm. it doesn't, there's no rhetoric for that, so it moves back and forth between the other two, which is, which is a metaphor for how the south is this blurring between global north and global south, yada, yada. But that piece got really selectively read, even as depicting a kind of southern essence which is the exact opposite of what I want to do. So I realized, okay, I'm going to have to be really, really blunt. Um, and, and, I mean, people think that I am, like, intrinsically blunt. But if you look at my work before 2006, it doesn't sound that way, right? And it's not like I had some blow to the head in 2006 or a stroke or something that changed my personality, or got struck by lightning, that changed my personality. It was a conscious... Um, decision based on what I saw happening to Patsy's book to be much more uh, direct uh, and also because if you if, if and out of an impatience with with exactly the kind of southern manners that Patsy talks about and I don't think it's unusual because so many people come into southern studies precisely because they identify as southern uh, and that involves a certain set of uh, assumptions about manners um, and if you don't do that. There are argumentative strategies you could use in American studies that would not bat an eye that if you use them in Southern studies will cause people to become annoyed because they're insufficiently uh, uh, well-mannered. But if you're well-mannered, people ignore the criticism because you've sugar-coated it and they can blow it off. Um, and so this is the thing, right? This is, this is, if you want to affect change in Southern studies, and probably in the South too, although I know, you have to, you have an impossible job. Uh, if you're too if you're too not direct enough, you get ignored. If you're too direct, people call you irrationally angry and blow you off for that reason. And I think part of it too is somebody has to be that guy way out here. Many thanks to John for this week's episode. About South is brought to you from the historic West End of Atlanta, Georgia. Kelly Vines and Ajoa Danso are my co-producers. Lindsey Baker keeps us social, and Brian Horton provides our music. You can find his music at brianhorton.com. You can find us at aboutsouthpodcast.com. And you can also talk to us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Please subscribe to the podcast and rate and review us wherever you listen. Next week, we're in Ridgeland, Mississippi for the Golden Girls Tribute Mystery Dinner Theater. Trust me, you do not want to miss it. Until then. <laughs> <laughs>